Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Ted Alexandro has made multiple appearances on David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Kimmel, Craig Ferguson, and The View. He's had two half-hour specials on Comedy Central and spent the past couple of years touring theaters and arenas around the world with Jim Gaffigan. He also is one of the co-founders of the New York Comedians Coalition, which successfully organized hundreds of comedians to negotiate the first pay raise in decades in New York City's comedy clubs. When Ted's at home in his native New York City, you can often see him perform at the Comedy Cellar. He just released his third self-produced stand-up comedy special, Senior Class of Earth, out now via All Things Comedy. Alexandro sat down with me at our neighborhood comedy hangout, QED, in Astoria. So let's get to it! So, Ted Alexandro, thanks for joining me here in the lovely QED studios. Yes, I didn't realize this existed, <laughs> but thank you for having me. Especially since I know it's uh, it's harder and harder to get time with you in Astoria. You've been on the road for the last couple of years with Jim Gaffigan. That's right. And you head out again in the morning, right? In the morning. Crack of dawn, I'll be on a plane to Nashville. Wow. Doing gigs with Jim for uh, yeah, Friday and Saturday. I know you've been, even before you started touring with Jim, I know... You, I remember seeing uh, you had toured in the Middle East mm-hmm. as part of a, a MetaMeds deal. Yeah. Um, out of all of your travels, where where's the one place you never thought you would be performing stand-up that you've done, that you've crossed yeah. off the list? You know, I would say that that Middle Eastern tour was was definitely on that list of, I can't believe I'm here. We, we did the Amman Jordan Comedy Festival. So I never thought I would be in Amman, Jordan. You know, I, I never that. thought Amman, Jordan would have a comedy festival, right? Yeah. So that that definitely was uh, a bit of a trip in in every possible way, uh, and just you know it, that was hosted by that one was hosted by Dean Obadala. Okay. So Dean invited me over, and I just remember I was there with James Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an Australian. Yep. Now he's back in Australia. He'd been in the New York scene for a long time. Right. Now he's now he's back home in Australia. But anyway, we we were kind of like that was our first time in the Middle East, and it wasn't like for the troops or anything like that. It was for people, civilians. Who, yeah, Jordanians, I guess. So yeah, so we were constantly peppering uh, Dean with questions, saying like, "Is this bit going to work? Is that mm-hmm. big?" And he just kept saying, "Just do your act. Just do it like you would do it at the cellar or anywhere else." And sure enough, he was right. You know, uh, you kind of forget that there's this, you know, kind of shared cultural framework now that the Internet exists. And especially for other people with regard to, like, American pop culture or American politics Mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily share in the other direction. You know, like, I didn't know who the King of Jordan was until I did that gig. Um, But anyway, yeah, so, like, any references that we had and stuff, they were right on top of it, you know. Um, I did a joke at the time about uh, Obama being our first black president and uh, how not only was he the first black president, but it would be the end of white presidents forever (laughs) because you know what they say. And I did that joke there. And that was like the one thing where I was like, well, they get that. Like, you know what they say. And I don't even finish it. You know, once you go black, I don't I don't ever I don't even finish it. I just leave it hanging. But it got a reaction like I could have been in any club in America, you know, so uh, 
once that joke hit, like it kind of put me at ease. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, you know, I don't really have to worry too much. Do you also do you get a different feeling touring with Jim when, whenever you get to like an arena sized crowd? Because you're not the headliner at those shows, so they're not. Yeah, you're yeah, performing to people who might not know you at all. That's right. In an arena, for right, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, it's a weird dynamic because I'm playing like sometimes NBA arenas. We mm-hmm. literally just played like the Milwaukee Bucks have this new, I think it's called Fiserv Arena or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you know, fifteen thousand people there to see comedy. But but as you say, they're there to see Jim. Uh, so maybe a percentage of them know me. Um, but it's not the majority. Um, so anytime you're opening for somebody and I've opened for a lot of people over the years. So you're, you know, you get familiar with that dynamic of maybe they're still getting seated. Right. Maybe they're not really paying attention yet. It's Um, kind of like a check drop almost. Yeah. To a certain extent. Um, but you know, if you get them in those first couple of minutes, and you can even address the weirdness of like, yeah, I realize you're not here to see me or whatever. But once you kind of alert them to the fact that you're you're good, you're funny, then they're on board, you know. So it can have that opposite effect of now they're surprised and they're excited because, A, probably they didn't know there was going to be an opener and, B, they like you. So <laughs> you can kind of win them over. Now for Senior Class of Earth, mm-hmm. that's your new one-hour special. Yep. When you filmed that, you filmed it at the Village Underground Comedy Cellar. Yes. When you filmed it at the time, did you have a game plan for how it was going to be distributed, or did that come later? That came later, yeah. Um, Like my previous two specials, I opted to self-produce it, self-fund it. So with that comes added challenges slash obstacles Mm -hmm. of, you know, how are you going to distribute it? Because of the fact that I self-produced it, uh, Netflix didn't, you know, they, they don't do specials, or at least they told me in this particular case, they passed on it because they, they like to be involved in the production from the inception. Okay. So then, you know, once that was off the table, then it became a little more murky of like, all right, how am I going to get this released? The last one I just put out on my website how many years ago was that? That was uh, three years ago. Okay. Yeah. So that was pay what you want mm-hmm. on my website. Um, so this one, uh, you know, I, I was happy with that one because it was like a smaller thing. It was shot at the creek in the cave. 30, 40 people is intimate, I get it. You know? Yeah. So it was like, <laughs> and it, honestly, what was interesting about that one, the last one for me was I didn't shoot that with the intention of putting it out as a special. I just shot a few nights I had done a week at the creek. Oh, where, right. Where a week you, at the creek where they let somebody just Yeah, you do a workshop. residency. Yeah. So, um, you know, then when I watched it back, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool and different uh, different from the typical vibe of specials where it's kind of this feeling of, you know, it's like the audience is on steroids. the Glitz and glamour. And, all of that. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like, um, uh, you know, organic. So I put that one out. So now cut to this with this special. I wanted it to be a little bigger, so obviously we shot it at uh, the Village Underground. They were nice enough to, to allow me to bring in a crew and shoot there. Shot a couple of shows. But as far as dis- distribution, then the question was, you know, where do I put it out? Um, luckily for me, I kind of just, by happenstance, had a conversation with Al Madrigal, 
great comedian who works with All Things Comedy, which is has primarily been a, a podcast network. Right. But he and Bill Burr co-own uh, All Things Comedy, and they told me they're starting to put out specials. So mine is the first one that they're putting out. So it oh, just nice. I got lucky. How did that? How did that compare with um, the? You said even the very first special you did was self. Yeah, done. yeah, that was fifteen years ago. What What was it even like to self produce? In hold on, while I do the math, two thousand three. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. Back then, it was like um, you know, like that was the infancy of social media, even, right? You I know? mean, YouTube wasn't a thing yet. Nope. So how no did YouTube. You, so how did you? Go about it. I just put it on my website. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a mailing list, you know, emails and stuff like that. Yeah, so it was really just kind of you do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of promotion. Mm -hmm. I I had a manager at that point, so there was also some promotion done around it in that regard. But, yeah, ultimately, I I don't know. For better or for worse, I, I have this thing part of my dna that i like to do things diy Mm -hmm. uh and i like to i like to own what i make too that's the other thing like instead of just handing it over to whoever it is some behemoth that writes you a check and then they do whatever they want with it and you never own it again well that's what most comedians were doing as recently as five years ago sure sure you sell it to comedy central you sell it to Showtime. I've done that in the past with the half hours, you know, and and it's a trade-off. Netflix, before they started doing originals, you were selling it. Sure. And then you got your upfront fee, and that was Yeah. If the check is big enough, it it makes sense in certain respects, you know, but there is something, um, again, like inorganic about an artist not owning their material, you know, or owning a performance. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there's this hard line thing of like, I'll never do it. If they start throwing around uh, tens of millions of dollars the way they they did with certain comics, Mm -hmm. I'm all ears. But, you know, for me, you know, I kind of weigh the pros and cons of like, what's the what's the sum of money being offered versus me having control of my work? Right. Well, that's something that that I know about you that I think more people are starting to know about you is that you've always been very active not just in affairs with comedians but active in social issues how did you how did you get involved with that comedians coalition in new york well i actually started that the first time there there were two iterations of uh, the comedians being organized for a pay raise mm-hmm. the first was uh, about 2000 or 2001, I wrote a petition basically saying we the undersized, well, undersized, <laughs> <laughs> undersized in terms of our pay, right. undersigned, mm-hmm. uh, are asking for a pay raise because the, the pay had not been raised since the mid 80s uh, in the New York clubs. So I got about 100, 100 comedians, mm-hmm. 120 comedians to sign this petition. And the pay went up, I think, like 10 bucks that first time. What was your status in the scene when you launched that effort? I was like maybe seven or eight years in. So I was, you know, not like an open mic comic, obviously. Mm -hmm. I was established. I was working most of the clubs. I I think I had just started to work the cellar, you know, like late night spots. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was past at the strip a couple of places. Um, I think I had done 
one half hour special at that point. So, you know, I was, I was like working and established, but, um, I wasn't a veteran. Right. So how did you feel? How did you have the gumption, the chutzpah to, to step out there when no one else was? Well, you know, these were just conversations that, uh, more and more I was finding myself having with comedians. Like we were talking about those things Mm -hmm. all the time. So for me, the way that I seem to operate over the years is like if I'm feeling compelled towards something and it's like at the forefront of my thoughts and, you know, the conversations I'm having at a certain point, I I inevitably ask myself, like, well, what are you what are you going to do? You know, so that was the case with that, where I felt as though like action was required. So, yeah, it was a little daunting to be, you know, a younger guy going up to again, this is pre social media. So I wasn't even sending uh, I wasn't sending like a Facebook or, a a, you know, like one of those petitions around that you just sign electronically. I was I was literally standing in a Starbucks or in the pizzeria by by the cellar waiting for people to come by. I would tell them, you know, I'm going to be at Ben's Pizza between uh, 9 and 11. So, you know, people would come by and sign it. So you could get people from either the cellar or from the Boston. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for me, it was it was this thing of like feeling compelled uh, and feeling as though, you know, I was in the right. We were in the right. Um, So, yeah. So let's do something about it. Was there ever any sense from the older comedians or even the younger ones that that you might be out of your mind and that comedians have to pay their dues and part of that is not getting paid? Yeah, I mean, I think there there was some discussion, you know, there was some healthy debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say the second time that we did it was uh, maybe 2007, so the flash forward like five, right. six years later. And that was uh, a bit more of a... a, a concerted effort between myself, Russ Maneev, Buddy Bolton, Tom Shalhoub, uh, and that involved like 300 comedians. That was when we formed the New York Comedians Coalition, okay. so that was a bigger push. Um, so to answer your question, though, yeah, there, there were people in both instances. When I first did that initial petition, probably more so then because I was a younger guy and it was almost like... You know, you're stepping out of line a little bit of like, oh, you're going to lead this thing or whatever. And I, I didn't even look at myself as leading it so much as like, all right, if somebody has to put their name. And I did ask a few veteran comics. So I had like, I think it was like Vic Henley and William Stevenson, some guys to put their names at the top with mine. And they were nice enough to, to agree to that. Um, certainly, I didn't have their stature in the scene right. at that time. So they were nice enough to uh, kind to of... for you. Yeah, and to put their name at the top. Um, so, yeah, there, uh, both times, I will say, there was like healthy debate around... Because it's almost like a philosophical thing. Like, how do you look at the clubs? Do you look at it as like it's just a gym to work stuff out do you think like you know who's benefiting are they are they really kind of um allowing us to be on their stages and you know so it was almost like an ideological debate among some people who were saying well we're lucky to work at the cellar or we're lucky to work at the comic strip or wherever it may be. That's the same debate that Mitch, 
to see Shorehead at the Comedy Store in right. the late seventies. Sure, sure. You know, and, and my exact debate. Well, I mean, you know, that kind of debate goes on really in every field. Like, mm-hmm. what what does labor bring versus you know the capital, who, the people who own the actual uh, the business? So, uh, my feeling was that the balance was out of whack. And a lot of people agreed with that, you know, so we were able to get the pay raised on both occasions. Why didn't the coalition stay together as like a quasi union or even a even form a, a bargaining unit? There was some talk of that, of unionizing or maybe even kind of uh, being a, a branch of SAG-AFTRA. Uh, the, the folks at AFTRA were actually very instrumental in serving as... Um, uh, like a liaison, they they were talking with the clubs. Well, the timing of that second effort was right around the writers' strike. So that's right, not too not too far before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, there was talk about unionizing and making it more official, but I think ultimately that was like a whole other beast. You know, the the pay issue was kind of the primary focus that got everybody interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but unionizing, I think the nature of our work as freelancers and a lot of the work is cash too. And people just didn't want to uh, get into this whole thing of like filing forms every time we do a set or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there, again, this was like, there was a, a healthy debate around all of these things, but Comedians being independent-minded, generally speaking, that seemed like too uh, Herculean an effort. It was it was enough just to get folks organized around the pay issue. Right. Well, how how often or do you ever still hear from comedians who talk about the pay issue, not just in New York but nationwide? Because yeah. what I hear is that for the middles, for the feature acts. You know, when you're not opening for Jim Gaffigan in an arena, when you're just opening for a comedian in a comedy club in Kansas City or Atlanta, sure, that you're still getting the same pay, perhaps as you were in the '80s. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah, it's problematic, you know, but but it is the supply and demand thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if you don't want the gig, there's dozens of people lined up behind you that are ready or not are willing to take the gig for for less money for less money yeah and certainly like the club doesn't care that much a lot of them about uh the quality of the opener you know a lot of cases they'll they'll put people up that aren't ready or you know that maybe are working for a discount or that have some relationship or whatever the case may be i know when i was when i was emceeing there were some gigs that i probably shouldn't have (laughs) same here yeah yeah yeah, so there's a but lot the owner of reasons. liked me, so yes, there's a lot of reasons why people are on stage, you mm-hmm. know. So, yeah, I do think that ultimately, you know, the 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 comedian is beholden to to themselves to try to uh, advocate mm-hmm. be, because, unfortunately, it is a very solitary pursuit, you know, and that also bleeds into, uh, unfortunately, you know, people don't want to speak up for obvious reasons like you know it could cost you you know you have to be kind of strategic about when you speak up Mm -hmm. you know with these types of things but fortunately for me you know i think i guess i did it at the the right times and i i did have the support you know it wasn't like i was just sticking my neck out 
foolishly. I, I knew that the, this is the way the winds were blowing, and there was a lot of support around the issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think comedians have to, you know, like like any any workplace thing, you have to weigh what what the pros and cons are. Um, and if you're in any position to have that conversation, you, you should. Do you think it's easier in 2018 for comedians to speak out, whether it's about pay or uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, in mm-hmm. comedy clubs, yeah, or any other kind of issue? Do you think it's easier now that everything's on the table? Or, well, th- or is it still kind of walking on eggshells? Well, certainly it's easier in terms of there's a lot more outlets. You know, when I started, it was just the state. The stage was your outlet. Now it's almost like there's two divergent outlets and they don't even really necessarily have to jive with each other. Mm -hmm. You have your voice on stage and you have your voice as a social media presence. And people use those differently. You know, there's there doesn't necessarily have to be overlap in the way that you use both of those things. So there are people that on stage are just telling jokes and it's pretty kind of down the middle, benign. You know, maybe they're talking about their lives. It's mm-hmm. personal. But in social media, they're talking about politics or they're talking about, you know, the issues that that you talked about, you know, so there's a lot more there's a lot more uh outlets mm-hmm. you know to to voice opinions um and people don't even necessarily have to do it in their act you know it, that can be reserved for for that whatever space they choose right. to but i do think it's it is a good thing overall that um the things that you alluded to are like everything's on the table and should be because i think what happened in prior years like when i started mm-hmm. It was a boys club, you know, it was absolutely a boys club and, you know, women had to uh, kind of almost shout to be to be heard, you know. Um, And also, if you're just trying to get stage time and you're just trying to navigate the insanity of the business as it is, on top of which maybe you're dealing with all of the things that have come to the fore in recent years and months uh, about harassment or, you know, kind of pay to play or some kind of, you know, some kind of predatory behavior that might be um, part of the bargain, you know? So, so now what we're seeing is the illusion of like this level playing field, as is often the case. Uh, If you take a closer look, it's, it's not. Now, like you said, plenty of comedians now that they have outlets will talk about social issues on stage. They'll talk about it and they'll start their own podcast to talk about it. Right. But you are one of the few comedians who I know, Judah Friedlander is another one, who before the Trump era mm-hmm. were out there marching. Mm-hmm. Like now you see comedians on social media joining the the parades and the marches and the protests. Yeah. But you were, were were kind of out there alone for a while. Well, I wasn't alone. It takes a lot well, of people and, to, and, make a, to well, make a march. For, but I mean, from <laughs> the stand-up... other comedians For the stuff? stand-up comedy community to actually, like, put yourself out there and go down to Occupy Wall Street and... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, even there, there were, were plenty too. of comedians, you know, may, maybe not people that... That everyone knew, but mm-hmm. but there were I would run into a lot of comedians, um, 
But to your point, yeah, again, for me, that was just where I felt compelled to be. You know, it wasn't like this calculated decision of like, yeah, I think participating in Occupy Wall Street will help my career or whatever. You know, it was just like I felt, you know, in a very um, visceral way and a very unexpected way because I wasn't really an activist. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt very connected to it. And, you know, interestingly enough, like all of the things that were talked about there have only really, you know, grown and, and uh, blossomed further to, like like you said, now a lot of these things are mainstream. So, you know, that feels good that, you know, that essentially it affirms I was in the right place, you know, because I, kn I knew I was, not that I needed affirmation, right. but, but I'm glad that more people are kind of participating. So if you say you weren't, like, brought up as an activist, mm -hmm. what what do you think was compelling you to get out there and actually take actions? Because... You know, for many comedians, it's easier to, oh, I'll do a, I'll do a charity gig that's raising money for something, mm -hmm. or I'll tweet a hashtag to give money to something. Yeah. But to actually put yourself physically out there, that, that's got to take something else in your soul or in your. Yeah, I guess it's gut. just right. I guess it's just kind of in your DNA, you know. Uh, but that that wasn't something you got from your parents, or well, I would say I got a strong moral compass from my parents. Mm -hmm. You know, they were both teachers, and uh, they were both active in the Catholic Church in ways that that I never found off-putting. I found them to be like walk the walk kind of people, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, I think their example probably resonated uh, with me. But as an adult, yeah, just when these things came about, whether it was Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or, you know, the uh, immigration, the Muslim ban, mm -hmm. th these types of things came up. Um, you know, I, I think I found like those movements more compelling than I do like politics. You know, like if I was going to participate in politics, it was going to be at that level of like almost amplifying headlines that are not being printed you know like um I, that's that's always how i looked at all of these movements really is just headlines that should be front page that for whatever reason well i shouldn't say for whatever for, for you know m monetary reasons mm -hmm. for a lot of people are not being placed front and center but these movements are placing them front and center and saying like you know these things should be paid attention to now, you know, I want to make sure we talk a little bit more about your actual comedy stuff. Hey, how about that? <laughs> One of the things that, I mean, you do stand out on stage, too, partially because of your confidence with, with pacing, with silence, with not, not feeling the need, especially in the New York scene, to beat people over the head with punchline, punchline, punchline. Mm-hmm. Like if people watch your videos, you'll you know stretch back and <laughs> lean against the wall and almost like it's almost like you're you're ruminating on a potential premise right in the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes that that's the case. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, no, I you know I've been doing it for twenty five years, so I am confident in you know like kind of exploring things on stage. Um, obviously my goal is always to make people laugh, you mm -hmm. know, that's, you know, I, I never want it to be an exercise in like dogma or preaching. 
some kind of heavy hand. I'm not trying to like convince people of anything necessarily. I'm, I'm trying to make them laugh. So, yeah. Um, but I think stylistically, probably um, it's evolved in the sense that I do allow myself to uh, to kind of think on stage, you know, because I think that is um, there's value in watching that, you know, like. You can tell when you're watching someone who's reciting something that they've done a thousand times, and I, I do it too, you know. But This is my tight five, and boom. That's right. But there's also value in watching somebody genuinely think something through, especially if it's uh, a topic that uh, the crowd has to maybe lean in a little bit and listen to, you know, that it's not just something that they're checked out, you know. like So it creates uh, like a heightened uh, atmosphere. 25 years did you did you think you would be doing this for 25 years when you started i i don't think i thought that far ahead you know <laughs> like when you're starting it's it's like you're drowning you know it's really like you're just kind of you're flailing you know mm -hmm. so you're flailing until the next gig and you were teaching uh, yeah I was, like your parents yeah like my parents i was an elementary school music teacher they didn't teach music but mm -hmm. I, I was a music teacher so that was my day job for five years it was part-time uh, that kind of went more into full time mm -hmm. and then faded back to part time and then okay. initially went away altogether but yeah it was a it was a good day job for a comedian because it was essentially public speaking you know right. I, I was in front of hundreds of elementary I've, schools i've noticed i 've noticed quite quite a few stand ups come out of teaching and, and i yeah I've started to put together it 's because you have an audience yes. a captive audience for a half hour at a time yeah yeah i mean you know i didn 't realize it at the time, but mm -hmm. you 're really kind of honing a skill set that that translates to stand up you know as far as like public speaking, keeping people 's attention, mm -hmm. being entertaining to to an extent so elementary music did you uh, ever have any school of rock? fantasies of your own um you know i don't think i thought turn these turn these 10 year olds into this ragtag group into of, punk rockers no no i was just trying to get through the day you know like <laughs> I, I i was aware that i was exposing kids to the arts mm -hmm. which was something that was important to me because i remember having teachers that i really liked at that age so i knew it was an important mission if you will like this the, the job of exciting kids about performance or about singing or about you know we did plays too so okay. all of that stuff i took seriously because i remembered how much it meant to me as a an elementary school kid to perform and to be on stage so that to me was cool that was the cool part of the job and you could see the seeds in certain kids some kids didn't care it was just whatever it's just another class but some kids you could see they really relished that opportunity so I, I like that i guess starting out in comedy while you're teaching you wouldn't have to worry about any of your students seeing you but did any of their parents ever see you on stage doing comedy you while know, you were still teaching i got my first conan when i was still teaching so oh wow and it was interesting because up until that point, I had kept the two completely separate. Mm -hmm. Didn't tell. I don't think I told any of my colleagues. I was really just kind of like Clark Kenting my way through okay. the teaching day. Not nobody knew that I had this whole other life. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
when when the Conan thing happened, people found out about it, and like there was a videotape. This was v- VHS. Right. There was a videotape making the rounds of some of the teachers and the parents. So the secret was out at that point. And but it was a good way for the secret to come out. It's not like they find out that you're doing open mics. They right. They found out. It's like it was, you were on. I was on Conan. network television. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was kind of a cool like, little bit of a buzz in the. What do you remember about that set that you did? Oh man, looking back now, I remember that I I wore a baggy sweater and I just you know how What was your hairstyle then? It was like hair that was thinning that I was trying to gel mm-hmm. into. Cuz I know that you used to have hair on top and not the beard. That's right. Now all now all the hair is it's gripping the bottom. Migrated. Of your head. Yes. <laughs> it went south. Hey, I can identify. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was it was a cool thing uh, to to get Conan, mm-hmm. but of course, like anything else from your early years, I kind of cringe when I watch it now. Because even stylistically, I was everything was bigger, mm-hmm. everything was louder. I was trying harder. I mean, I can look at the set. Uh, I was telling my wife the other day, like. I I look at it and I say like oh that uh, that guy that, I'm proud of that kid he's a, he's a good young comedian mm-hmm. but it but the other side of it is uh, yeah you just cringe watching because you know how how badly you want it <laughs> you know you can see you can taste it well fortunately since it was Conan uh, Conan's building that new website and. That set will be on the new website. That's right. It'll live forever, probably. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is a, a funny, not funny, aha, but funny, crazy that a lot of the late night shows also don't treat the stand up comedy clips that well. Uh, the the late night shows don't. Yeah. In what sense? In in letting them live online. They might live online for a month or even a year, but then they'll take them down or they'll right. disappear, and then. Unless you own somehow own the video clip yourself, right? Yeah. Well, that is weird. I think now don't they all have YouTube channels though? So I think like even they, then sometimes they go away. They yeah. take them down. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. I don't know if it's for. I don't know for what reason that is. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. You would think there there's no disadvantage to keeping it up. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, how much? How much longer after that first Conan set did you still teach? Not long, maybe. It was like, you can tell I have other things going on (laughs) when you walked back into school. Yeah, yeah. It got harder and harder to go back. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you what, the fifth year, maybe that was in the fourth year that I I did Conan. In the fifth year when I went back, I knew I was kind of on borrowed time. I wasn't, like my heart wasn't in it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even make it through that full fifth year. I think like around holiday time, uh, like I told the principal, like, I'm not, I'm not going to come back because you know what, actually, now that I remember what happened was, uh, I went out to LA for pilot season. Uh, so I told her I'm not going to come back after the new year. Right. Yeah. How did they handle it? They were excited. You know, what was cool about that was, uh, there's nothing that be- you can't ask for a more supportive group of people than an elementary school like so classes were making up books for me like dear mr alexandro we hope you make it big in hollywood like so they would draw pictures of me with like a suitcase going off to the hollywood sign so i got like literally you know dozens and dozens of these little cards from kids wishing me well so it was like the sweetest thing you know so if you're going to go off to follow your dream uh you could do worse than having an army of kids do you know if any of your former students are currently in the arts or i do because one of them 
is a rapper, uh, Ricky Horowitz, and he would come to the cellar periodically. I haven't mm. seen him in a few years. That's not his stage name, Ricky Horowitz, is it? No, uh, <laughs> I forget what he. <laughs> I forget what he goes uh, his rap name, but uh, yeah, I would. But see, no, Ricky Horowitz. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, Adam He's Horowitz. <laughs> you know the Beastie right, Boys. Right, right. Um, yeah, so. I, there was a group of of my former students who were, by the way, are now all in their mid twenties. Right, that's why I asked. You know, uh, yeah. So they would come; they'd see me at Caroline's mm-hmm. or the cellar. Uh, but as far as to your question, uh, Ricky was the only one that I knew was okay. like seriously preserved. Oh, and actually, there was one girl who was a concert pianist. Well, fair but I mean, I, in no way am I taking any credit for, for either of their. She had to start somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah. started in Mr. Alexandro's That's elementary right. music class. All right, maybe I will take credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you're, you know, so far m- removed from that life, yeah, and you just put out this new special, and you have all things comedy backing you. Do you have like a a game plan? I mean, you just got married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just so, had like, our first so you're, anniversary. So you're settling into this new chapter in your life. Yeah, yeah. Does that change what the expectations are going forward? I think you always reassess, you know, as you as you move along. Uh, for me, in the past, I've taken a very go where the wind blows type of approach, you know. So for a period, I was opening for Lewis Black, for a period I was opening for Louie, for another period I was opening for Craig Ferguson, and the, and then now for Jim Gaffigan. And all of those things, you kind of, are, you're almost serving an apprenticeship where you, uh, you're you learning what the next level entails, and you're playing huge arenas, and you're seeing the demands of press and all these other things. So um, for me, yeah, I think I would like to kind of be on the bigger stage myself. Mm-hmm. Um so I always take an approach of I, I want it to be organic and I want it to be because my work merits it. You know, I don't want it to be like I never wanted it to be like the cart before the horse, like some kind of fabricated PR thing. I wanted it to be because my work merits me being there. So, yeah, so I'm uh, now that I am married and, right. you know, now you're not flying solo. So, yeah, so there is. You might have someone saying, Ted, what are you do? How much longer is this going to be the thing? <laughs> you know, uh, I think not. In, my, my wife, fortunately for me, is mm-hmm. is supportive and um, uh, kind of instigates like my, What's a, how should I say it? Like pushes me out of my comfort zone in in ways that like I'm always kind of content to like lay back and, mm-hmm. but she uh, kind of initiates like well you know how about you think about this or that or you know even like getting representation you know because I've I've kind of navigated the business for for a long time right. with, without representation and just relied on my own contacts. Uh, but yeah, I'm just kind of I'm reevaluating that and I'm kind of you know looking to get representation and yeah, just looking You're to willing do to give that 15, 30%. <laughs> and it was never even about that. It was just <laughs> about the freedom of mm-hmm. like not having to, you know, to navigate the thing of being offered. Do you want to do last comic standing or do you want to do this show or that show? Like I was so tired of like saying no to th- when I did have representation, mm-hmm. I was tired of saying no 
to so many things and I almost felt like a disappointment like wh- why do I even have representation if like everything they bring me I'm like Ugh, I don't want to do that I don't want to do that so um, it's like you're wasting their time yeah yeah it's like I'm not a good client you know I, I don't I don't want to do any of this crap you know um, but I do want to do more acting and I do want to you know I've written some scripts and stuff so um, yeah I do think that I'm people can see your work in Teacher's Lounge that's right a web series that the I award winning web series that's right thank you um, so yeah I am as they say opening up to the okay. universe's possibilities what what did you learn uh, life wise or career wise from each of those apprenticeships you mentioned yeah well they all happened at, at different stages of my career uh, I would say you know the the one through line that I that I learned from each of those comics is to be decisive about what you want and what you don't want, you know, that you have the power, especially as you move up the chain and your, your, your name is on the ticket, uh, you have the power to say yes or no to a lot more things. And I'm, talk, I'm talking about the peripheral things. I'm not just talking about on stage. Right. I'm talking about all the peripheral demands where they're like, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you meet with this group? Can you sign that? Can you do this press? Um, you know, because as comedians, I think we're so used to doing whatever is put in front of us and here's what you have to do and here's the next thing, you know, that, that it becomes this kind of, uh, unconscious path of not really thinking like, do I want to do that? So yeah. Submissiveness out of fear? I think so. Yeah. Either fear or just not even considering that you have, yeah, not even realizing that you can say no to things, you know? So for me, like, yeah, you, realizing that there's this parallel growth of you as an artist and you as a person. So, like, what kind of life do I want? And each of the decisions that I'm making impacts my life as well and my time. Um, so, yeah, you have to do a certain amount of promotion and everything. Um, but, yeah, so in watching each of the comedians that I mentioned, like, I learned things that I... Uh, wanted to maybe incorporate other things that I didn't want to incorporate because ultimately it's just like you have to have an authentic expression of how you want to engage with the world and with the business. Right. So if there's a uh, young comic or even one of your students who's now in his or her early 20s yes, says, uh, Mr. Alexandro, may I call you Ted? Um, <laughs> or no, you say, please call me Ted. Yes. And, and yes. then they go, uh, I'm thinking about getting into comedy. Mm. What, do you, what, what would be the first thing you'd tell them? Oh, man. I, w- I would say, great. You know, <laughs> go for it. You know, the thing I love about comedy is the second somebody decides to do it, mm-hmm. We're essentially equals. Like, I I could be on the bill that night, and you could be before or after me. You know, like, there is a real democratic aspect of, like, as soon as you say you're a comedian, you essentially are. You can be on stage that night, you know. So my advice to any, any, like, young comedian or a former student, anyone who wants to try it, is um, what I usually say is if you want it to be your job, approach it. As if it is, you know, put in the work, put in the time writing, um, show up at the office every day. You got to be you got to be at work if you want it to be your job. So, 
you know, there's no such thing as a wasted night at the club. You know, when I was starting, there were nights where I hung out for four hours, five hours and didn't get on. So you're just in the back watching the likes of Vettel or Chappelle or, you know, back then it was, you know, even John Stewart or whoever was there. You're you're absorbing a lot of information and you're watching how comedians deal with any number of situations, you know, and some some that do it well, some that do it poorly. But you have to be in the office. You have to you have to show up and kind of um, pay your dues. Well, you know, Ted, hearing you say anyone can be a comedian just by saying they're a comedian. <laughs> I think I think we really have to think hard about unionizing. <laughs> so it's only legit people can make the the comedian union. That's uh, you're probably not wrong, but. <laughs> You're going to have to take up the mantle. I'll, I'll sign the petition. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we better get going then. Thanks, <laughs> Ted. My pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.